The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. If your job is your whole life and your boss says something disparaging or you have a bad day at the office, it can very easily spill over into all of the other facets of your life unless you have cultivated a, a more diverse portfolio of identity. It also can lead us to be more creative and innovative as we have more sources of inputs. It allows us to be more well-rounded versions of who we are. It allows us to cultivate some of those interests and hobbies that aren't necessarily side grinds that we hope to monetize, but just things that we do because they make us come alive. It's Friday and the last day of our masterclass with Simone Stolzoff, author of The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. If you missed any earlier episodes, you can find them in your podcast feed or on our Next Big Idea app. For our final conversation, I'll be talking with Simone about all that stuff you do when you're not working. Spending time with family and friends, resting, relaxing, cooking, cleaning, hobbies. You know, all those things you do in your spare time. Well, that phrase spare time might be part of the problem. It encourages you to think of your non-work activities as optional, when in fact, if you want to get the most out of life, they're mandatory. Diversify your identity beyond work. If you treat work as the primary source of meaning, identity, community, and purpose in your life, it's a perilous game. It's as if you're balancing on a narrow platform prone to be blown over from a strong gust of wind. We've particularly seen this recently in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and layoffs and furloughs across many different industries and sectors. There are a few risks to this approach. If you treat your job as your primary source of identity and you lose your job, what's left? It also creates massive expectations about what a job can deliver. But the one I want to focus on here is the fact that when we live a work-centric existence, we can neglect other parts of who we are. When we are working all the time, it doesn't just take our best hours, but often our best energy too. And so my last piece of advice is to carve out time to do things other than work and fill that time with active forms of leisure. It may sound obvious, but if you want to create meaning in your life, it requires time and energy. You have to actually do things other than work. Active forms of leisure can take many forms. It can be investing in your relationships by, for example, setting up a weekly breakfast date with your best friend. It can be finding a hobby that you don't have to monetize or become an expert at, but it's just because the activity itself brings you joy. Or it can be finding a community through a means of exercise or a community or political or neighborhood group where an identity beyond who you are in the office is reinforced. You cite the psychotherapist Esther Perel, who says that too many people bring the best of themselves to work and bring the leftovers home. I found that kind of a powerful comment because it did resonate with 
this idea that if we are too identified with our jobs, if we are all putting our passions into our jobs because this is who we are, this is our calling, then we get home to our families, to our friends, and we're drained, we're burnt out. We don't have anything to give those people. And maybe that's a little bit backwards. Yeah, I think there's sort of two lenses that we can take in approaching this. One is from the perspective of what makes for a good worker. And the research shows that people that have what researchers call more self-complexity, which is just a fancy way of saying people who have cultivated mm -hmm. different sides of themselves, tend to be more resilient in the face of adversity. You know, this makes sense. If your job is your whole life and your boss says something disparaging or you have a bad day at the office, it can very easily spill over into all of the other facets of your life unless you have cultivated a, a more diverse portfolio of identity. It also can lead us to be more creative and innovative as we have more sources of inputs. It allows us to be more well-rounded versions of who we are. It allows us to be better friends and be better parents. It allows us to cultivate some of those interests and hobbies that aren't necessarily side grinds that we hope to monetize, but just things that we do because they make us come alive. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the, the key point here, which is on the other side of prioritizing work, is the ability to prioritize our lives, the things that make us who we are beyond our ability to produce economic value. But culturally, we still do seem to admire the single-minded people, you know, that athletic champion who's just laser-focused on success, or the technological innovator who just is, is going to ignore everything else for some period of years just to accomplish this this goal. Do you think we're wrong to admire people like that? I don't think so, but I think the scale is tipped too far in that mm -hmm. direction. We tend to revere people like the famous painter or the astronaut or the social entrepreneur whose whole life and identity center around their work. But you know, as an old mentor of mine once said, some people do what they love and others do what they have to do so they can do what they love when they're not working. And neither is more noble. I think that last part is key. You know, especially here in the United States, we tend to equate being successful as being the ultimate goal in life. But you know, even when we call someone successful, we don't mean that they are happy or that they are healthy. We mean that they've made a lot of money. And mm. as I learned from many of the quote unquote successful people that I interviewed for the book, it's not always a recipe for lasting fulfillment either. I remember having this thought when I was spending time with my daughter in her elementary school and just being struck by this weird way we've set up our society where when people are young, they're expected just to learn, learn, learn. We're going to teach you. You're going to grow. We're going to give you all this great information. And then when your education ends, you're done. Now you've got to produce, 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 work. You're done learning. You're done growing. And if I were in charge of reorganizing our society from scratch, I would love to make that much less binary and have children 
work more, you know, apprentice, that kind of thing, and have adults learn more, you know, like your your identity can't just be working just because you've graduated from college or from grad school. You should still be learning. So I would love to mix up that system. I love that point. And especially because it underscores the necessity to find a, a middle path. You know, mm-hmm. I want to be clear that my perspective and, and the book is not anti-work, even though there is a lot of cultural cachet right now and being anti-work or mm. anti-capitalist. You know, the truth is we we still live in a material world. We need to earn money in order to pay rent and pay our bills. I'm I'm reminded of this new research that came out recently from UCLA that found that there was an ideal amount of free time to have in the day. You know, you might think about free time as something that just like more is better, but the researchers found that on either extreme there is danger. If you don't have enough free time in your day, you know, it's very easy to burn out or be sick or just not have a more robust foundation upon which you're living. But if you have too much free time in the day, it can also be dangerous and a lot of the sort of pull towards extremism or a depression can stem from having a lack of structure in our days. I do think work is an integral part of life. It has the potential to bring us immense meaning and joy. Certainly, I've made lifelong friends from different jobs that I've had. Mm. But I think the balance is understanding that it is just one part of who we are and not the entirety of our lives. So let me wrap up by asking you to get a little bit personal. I'm curious about where you are on your own journey. I know you you quit a big job, but then you took on this project of writing a book, which I'm guessing was pretty intense and all-consuming. Um, so, uh, you know, you're telling us we shouldn't be so identified with our work, but I'm curious where you are. And I guess I'll, I'll ask you that question that we Americans always ask. Simone, what do you do? I am a chocolate chip cookie connoisseur. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's a great question. And I think there is a central tension in you know having written a book about the culture of overwork in America and having worked very hard on it. You know, I think one thing that I found, especially after I left my corporate job to focus on the book full time was... I often thought that it was my job or my manager that was pushing me to work all the time. And in fact, when I started working for myself, I realized that I was the worst manager that I've ever had. You know, it was me driving myself to overwork and to not have very clear boundaries between when I was on and off the clock. And so I think a, a few things have helped. You know, one is understanding that there is a seasonality to work. Mm-hmm. And even though right now I'm sort of in the throes of this period of promoting the book and you know doing a lot of work, hopefully this can be balanced afterwards by a season where I have a different value system where I'm pre- promoting other things in my life beyond just, you know, the the book that has my name on the cover. And you know, the second is that if we want to be productive over the long term, 
burning ourselves out or burning the candle at both ends or grinding as hard as we can is not actually a recipe for producing our best work. Mm -hmm. We all know this anecdotally. If you're on hour 11 of a 12-hour day, you're not going to be firing at all cylinders. And so I think it's incumbent on, on managers and bosses to recognize that you know we live in a different economy than we lived in 30, 40 years ago. And by respecting employees' life outside of the office, you can actually set them up to be doing better, more sustainably productive work when they're on the clock as well. I'll just end by you know this tweet that um, this religious scholar, Casper Terkyle, who I interviewed for the book, sends out every Friday. And every Friday he sends out the same line, and it is, the work is not done, but it is time to stop. And I love this so much, you know, especially in this day and age, there's always one more email that we could send or one more spreadsheet that we could look at in our weeks. But one thing that I've tried to do is think about, okay, what is the difference between doing this at Friday afternoon at four o'clock versus doing this at, you know, 9.30 on Monday morning and trying to recognize some of these implicit scripts that I've internalized that kept me working all the time and trying to understand that there is another way. Well, Simone, thank you so much for coming on The Next Big Idea Daily. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me, Michael. And thank you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Simone Stolzoff. And now, get back to work, if you're at work. If you're not at work, for God's sake, don't work. Go play some music, make a new friend. Put work in its proper place and realize you're much more interesting than what you do for a living. That mindset, paradoxically, might even make you better at your job. Now, a couple of people I know who are really good at their jobs are Kayla Bissinger and Mike Toda, who edited and mixed this week's episodes. I wrote and produced them, and Rufus Griscom executive produced. I'll be back next week talking to Marcus Collins, author of For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. If you've ever wondered why Android users and iPhone users sometimes seem to live in two separate countries, you'll want to hear what Marcus has to say. I'm Michael Kavnat. See you Monday. <laughs>